I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder. The good and the not so good. The successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, here we go. I'm telling you, the guest we have to listen to today, her name is Carmen Cool, and I can't tell you how beautiful of a soul Carmen is. It was an absolute pleasure to work with her today. We are talking about weight stigma and how that had an impact on her own eating disorder and how it impacts our culture and our profession today. We also talk about the fact that one of the things that turned her recovery around is she got angry and she used that anger to use her voice as opposed to turning it against herself and inward, which is what people do with an eating disorder. They have something they want to talk about, say, share, express. They're angry. There's a message to be heard. But instead, they often silence their voice by eating disorder behaviors. So it's really, really great to hear how Carmen took anger, an emotion that's necessary to pay attention to, and used it to become an activist, to talk about social justice, We also talk about the fact that Carmen, not only herself had an eating disorder, but so did one of her sisters or her sister. And unfortunately, her sister lost her battle to it. So there is a lot to talk about in this episode. All right, here we go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I am moved and honored to have our next guest on. Today, we are going to be sitting with, or I am going to be sitting with, Carmen Cool. Carmen, welcome to the show. Oh, Karen, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here and be in conversation with you. I, I think that that's what I, you know, you and I were talking for a few minutes before the, the podcast started and, and that's what I love. And that's why I do the show conversation. That's, that's what I want. And, and Carmen, you have quite a bit to, to share with listeners. So could you just start by letting the listeners know a little bit about who you are and the work that you do? And then we're going to get into more of the podcast. Yeah, Absolutely. I'm a psychotherapist. I'm currently in Boulder, Colorado, and I've been I've been a therapist for maybe 21 years, I think. And I have, let's see, I've started a nonprofit, um, not currently running, but I did a lot of work with teenagers around eating disorder prevention and youth activism. And I also like to make sure that I say that I'm a cupcake connoisseur because it's a really important part of who I am. 
I also know, and that's just because I I did a little a little homework be- ahead of time. Didn't you didn't you write somewhere on your website that like one of the most important things is melted cheese? Yeah, I was coming up with a list of statements to let people know what I believe in, and I said I believe in the power, the comforting powers of melted <laughs> cheese. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Could right? not agree more. Carmen, you know, and and so listeners know, I I am just incredibly moved by having you on the show. And I I feel, I just, I, I feel like you have so much to talk about. And and your voice for me feels powerful, strong, and also a little gentle. Is that accurate? Is that an okay way of describing it? I think it's a beautiful way to describe it, actually. Um, yeah, I feel like uh, I've been working with kind of um, owning my power and knowing that the way that I do that doesn't look like the way a lot of folks do. And so I like to think of soft power and quiet power. So hearing you say that feels like um, it feels true and like I feel seen. So thank you for that. I I feel and and maybe I'm using my own experience and and I always want to say that I feel like a lot of people that are recovered have a bit of, have that quality and and I guess again I'm going to speak for myself I I had a lot to say when I was younger before my eating disorder started but I I didn't know I had the ability or I didn't have the courage to say it so I feel like I myself now as a fully recovered person, I feel powerful and strong and I feel the same way in a gentle way. I don't have to scream. I I don't have to. So anyway, I just wanted to point that out. So I'd love to start with some of the social justice work that you do because eating disorders are a social justice issue. And can you share a little bit about like what it means to you when I say that? Yeah, it means so many things to me. And I also feel like it's important for me to say that my, the language that I use and my own thinking about that is always constantly evolving, um, which means I might listen to this podcast in six months and have think, oh, I would have a very different answer to that now, you know? So I'm, I'm always in a learning curve, I think, around... Um, thinking more deeply and having a stronger analysis around this stuff. Can I interrupt before you continue? Please do. Isn't that a beautiful way to live your life? Aren't you more comfortable saying, I may change my idea in six months. This podcast or this thing that I say right now does not define me. I have the, I, I want the world to know I have the luxury to evolve into a different idea. And, and I just wanted to point that out because that's, that's a beautiful thing. I apologize. Keep going. No apologies necessary. Um, so the question, right back to the question. <laughs> this is going to be a long interview. everyone. <laughs> oh, it's, it's great. It's delightful. Um, social justice. I, you know, I think I started out thinking about that in terms of um, feeling like I was working at the intersection of eating disorders and weight stigma, which is where I've always wanted to be when I became a therapist and started doing this work. It matters a great deal to me. 
Um, and then, of course, as I started learning and unlearning and, you know, analyzing and critiquing and um, looking at my own stuff, realized it was so much broader that there are so many ways that um, oppression lands on our bodies and really doing the work to um, doing the internal work. Well, ha hang on. I, I want to be careful how I say that, actually. Um, doing, doing whatever work we need to do to heal. And at the same time, doing the work outside in the culture so that those forces acting on us that tell us that our bodies aren't okay can shift. I think um, one of my earliest teachers and mentors was Susan Woolley. And I was lucky enough to have her as a therapist um, in my early 20s. I'm 55 now, so it's been a long time. But I remember her saying to me, you know, you can do the work as a therapist to help somebody love their body in particular someone who's in a fatter body right you can do that work in your office but they're still going to walk out into a world that hates them and I remember thinking then oh 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 right so there's limitations to one-on-one -on -one therapy work and I have to be out there doing something doing something around the things that are bringing people in to start with in order for me to feel like I'm I'm being a full and a full therapist right so that's when the activism work started coming in a little bit. What do you say to the client who sits across from you and says just that, Carmen, I can, I can drop into my body. I can tolerate, neutralize, love my body. And I step out of your office and I'm discriminated against. I say, I know you are. And let's do something about that. I think you're just saying I know allows them to not feel like there's something wrong with their thought process. Like sometimes I just say to my clients, I just that you're right. I know because for me to say, oh no, no, that's, that's not going to happen. Just stay in your body. That's not, I'm setting them up. That's not fair. And I just appreciate that. Go ahead. You look like you were going to say something. Yes. <laughs> there's so much, there's so much getting activated. Um, my thoughts are moving very quickly, but there's something that I believe really strongly in around not, not placing the problem solely inside of the body of an individual. Right. So that's, that's what I think of when you say that, like the problem isn't someone's relationship with their body. The problem is oppression, right. And the way that that impacts our relationship with our bodies. So, so helping someone realize that, um, you know, and that's my problem, I think, sometimes with diagnosis, right? Like it, it problematizes it and puts it inside an individual when actually we have met and we have, we have big cultural disorders. Um, is the way I want to think about it often. We have outside forces, we have systems that are set up to disconnect us from ourselves. And, and so really helping somebody see that the problem lives out there and not inside of ourselves matters to me. It also makes me think of when um, when you say this, I, I'm a big fan of Jean Kilborn, and she does a documentary called Killing Us Softly. And that documentary just, it just depicts, is that the right word, depicts? I don't know. It just shows the way that we are so conditioned to look at the human body as an object, as a thing that we are completely disconnected by it to it and we are so disconnected to the point that we are bombarded by images all day long 
and we are, we are completely disconnected from these images. I don't know what just made me think of that. That's something that. Go ahead, yeah, go ahead. we are we are inundated with images um, that are designed to make us feel bad, and then designed to make us spend money, right? So the influence of capitalism on all of that. Um, but we're also influenced by systems. I know Sonia Renee Taylor talks about this a lot, like the ladder of hierarchy, right? So systems that give certain bodies access to more privilege and rights and resources than other bodies. Um, and I think of that very much, almost more so now than, than images or our own personal body image. Like it's this, um, this whole other sets of things that we're navigating. It's so interesting. Like, I think, let me think about how I want to articulate this. We are in a cultural crisis. We have been for quite some time. Um, and I, I think it takes, it's so interesting for me and from my experience, it took the strength of me getting out of my eating disorder to not be so impacted by it. And when you're in the eating disorder, you are constantly dictated by all of these messages and things like that. Um, and and I've never, I, I don't know if I, if I was making sense when I just said that. I, I know what I was trying to say in my mind. <laughs> yeah, I got you. I don't know if everyone else understood that. How do you feel like weight stigma affected or did it affect you in your eating disorder and how did you pull out of it Carmen mm. I uh, it's a, such a big a good question and such a big and broad question um, and I think my answer would be controversial to some folks actually in the field um, because I want to say that I don't know I know this isn't true for everybody, of course, of course, of course. Um, but I don't know that I would have gone down the path of an eating disorder if it hadn't been weight stigma, honestly. So if I hadn't been feeling like my body was too big, it needed to be smaller, I don't know that I even would have, I don't know that that's the path I would have gone down. I might've chosen something else to help me manage anxiety or you know have a sense of belonging or whatever else, You know, those other pieces that are underneath there. But um, to me, weight stigma was a, a huge, influence and um and feeling like i needed to be my body needed to be different because my body and the size that it was 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 absolutely not okay and then the question about pulling out of it huh, in some ways i think i still am meaning i like to say i'm recovered from an eating disorder but i'm still recovering from weight stigma so i think um let me think back Honestly, I'm going to bring up Susan Woolley again, who um, was my first relational image of somebody in a larger body who was all the things I thought I needed to have a small body in order to be, right? So beautiful, successful, powerful, amazing. And so it, it created a lot of cognitive dissonance around like, well, I thought I needed to be thin in order to have these things, but here's somebody who has all those things and isn't thin. And so what am I doing? Right. And so it really um, and then and then she introduced me to activism and introduced me to help at every size that wasn't even named yet. But she she kind of put me on that path. And and then honestly, I started getting really mad. And one of the questions I'm often asked is, you know, some version of what what was a really important factor in your recovery. 
and I am veering off from your initial question, but I'm going to keep going. Um, and I, because I think it's connected, um, but I remember being asked that question for the first time and, and I wanted to say, you know, that the answer was something like love or compassion or kindness. And, and the truth is it wasn't any of those things. I was fucking pissed. Like it was outrage. And, and that is what keeps, I think that is what helps me um, continue to fight and fight the forces that would, and the systems, right, that would have me believe that I am not okay just as I am. There are two things I want to point out from what you just said. First of all, I love that you said, because this is this is vulnerable and this is your truth. When you said, I've recovered from my eating disorder, but I'm, I'm not fully recovered from weight stigma, meaning we are all human. I think sometimes the reason why I'm so glad that you said that and the reason why I do these interviews and, and I, I use my own experience often is... I think people have a misconception of what being recovered is. And if they haven't achieved this misconception, then they don't feel like they've achieved recovery. And that doesn't mean that you're not still a human being in this culture that is still susceptible to things like weight stigma, insecurities, anxiety. It's just that you are gratefully no longer taking it out of on your body you are no longer manipulating your body or your food as a way of, of quote unquote, fixing the problem. Now you're using your words. Now you're using your, your ability to, to make a change. I love that. It just took me down this whole other thought process of, of the language of recovery and recovered and what is recovery and what does it mean? And um, are we always in recovery, you know, uh, and who gets to decide, which to me is the bigger question and the more important question, like who gets to decide to decide what that is. And honestly, as I'm sitting here thinking, I don't even know that I use that language anymore for myself of recovery or recovered, um, kind of think of it more as reclamation, right? Because I think what you were, what you were starting to say is that recovery, if we use the language can become this other set of criteria that we're either meeting or not. And I'm interested in changing language that sets us up in that way to feel like there's still something we're striving for. There's still something we're not good enough at. And I don't get the relief of satisfaction anymore from saying this is recovered and this isn't recovered. Right? Um, it's more, what's my relationship with myself right now? And that's what I care the more. That's what I care the most about, actually. You know, I think eating disorders come in many forms and so does recovery. And we get to define that for ourselves. The pathways we take to heal and what healing looks like are different for all of us. I completely agree with that. The other thing I was going to ask, and I do not want you to feel obligated to answer this question, but, and, and I, I know where you're coming from, but what, why do you think there's controversy about you saying that your eating disorder stemmed from weight stigma? Yeah, I think... I think sometimes there's a rift in the field. Well, I think sometimes there's more than one rift in the field. Um, and I think that some people would say um, it's a biological or a genetic or a brain-based disorder and doesn't not fully impacted by the culture in the way that I, that I tend to think that it is. And so there's, you know, there's, I've seen debates actually in professional conferences um, between the, 
the sociocultural model and the, the biological, you know, and, and, and so I think that's where I was coming from. Um, for me, in my experience, white stigma played a very important role in, in my relationship with my body and what I thought I needed, it, what I thought it needed to be. I remember from a very, very young age being aware that my body did not look like other people's. My mother reminded me, and I, I forgot about this, when I was younger, my parents had a, a pool in the backyard. And my mother said that she would look out her, her bedroom window if she was like in her bedroom doing something and look down at us. And from a really young age, she would see me sitting on the edge of the pool, but lifting myself up so my thighs did not spread out. Weight stigma happens at a very, very young age, or at least it did for me. My, and I want to say my own internalized weight stigma at that point. What an image though, right? Like a, I, I was probably six years old and my mother remembers that. And after she told me that, I can actually envision that in my mind. I can remember that moment. It makes me feel sad to hear that, you know? And I certainly have those experiences that I can remember. Most people that I work with can remember an early experience when like, oh, my body's not, my body is wrong. Something about my body is not okay. Yeah, yeah. And that did, that was a message that came from my environment. I, I wasn't born, genetically born with that message. I'm wondering how it is for you working in the field where, you know, we are constantly sitting with people that are talking about their bodies and their weights. Does it ever trigger you? Do you get triggered? Hmm. That's a really good question. I, uh, I do get triggered, but in different kinds of ways than I think you might mean or what I'm imagining you might mean. Um, it requires that I, that I, that I keep doing the work of embodiment, right? So it requires that I'm really solid in my sense of myself and my relationship with my own body. Um, I know some other folks have talked about this as a therapist too, but like the meaning of my body changes depending on who's in the room with me, at least when we used to see people in our rooms and not just virtually right now, right? Um, this is being recorded in the middle of a pandemic, but um, you know, like, someone maybe from a restrictive place might look at my body and feel really scared that recovery means they would look like me. And somebody else might say, I'd give anything if my body could look like you. And I'm just hanging out here in my body. Um, and the meaning of it changes depending on, on the context. And so that means that I have to be, I have to be really firmly inside of myself. And so the triggers that I have in the field now don't really come from clients and their relationship with their bodies or they're talking about um, fatness or weight or eating disorder behaviors or anything like that, I get triggered by, I get triggered by the fat phobia that's still in the field. That's what, that's what I feel most triggered by these days. Does that make sense? It does. Can you say more about it? Yeah, I get, I get triggered and I don't even know if that's the word I want to use. I get angry. Um, I get angry at the ways that um, the field, uh, this is a little edgy right now. I think I want to be a little, do I want to be careful? I'm not sure how careful I want to be. I'm, I'm trying to sort this through as I'm speaking out loud right now. 
Carmen, I want to honor wherever you want to go with this. Okay, thanks. I'll just talk. I, my experience has been um, with clients and then visiting some of the traditional mainstream treatment centers that, that talk about weight stigma, right? And talk about the impact still are valuing thinness at the end of the day. So whether that's making sure clients meal plan changes so they don't gain too much weight, whether that's different meal plans for someone in a higher weight body than in a lower weight body. Like it, I just think that the field doesn't have its stuff together around this. If I'm honest, I'm kind of calling the field into a reckoning and into account around let's really talk about the ways that weight stigma and fat phobia are frankly sometimes the reason we're here. You know what I mean? Like, um, and, and what are the, I don't think the question should be, are we perpetuating it? I think the question is how, how are we? How are we reinforcing weight stigma, thin supremacy, you know, all of those things. How are we reinforcing that in the, in the work that we're doing? I, when I used to work at residential programs, um, I helped open one. And I remember walking through as we were getting the furniture and I was saying how we have to have chairs without arms, with arms, beds that can support every single, every size. And somebody that was doing the walkthrough with me said, why? And I said, because we're an eating disorder program and people are going to come in all body types. And shame on us if we make somebody feel uncomfortable because they don't fit into a chair. Shame on us if we do not supply, that's not the right word, but provide, that's a provide a place where everybody feels comfortable and seen. And it, it amazed me. And, and by the way, the person that was doing a walkthrough with me was, was very young, was, was, you know, and even that, I feel like I was just giving them a hall pass. Don't mean to say that. Um, but it's true. Even in treatment centers, I've heard dietitians say, don't worry, I'm not going to let your weight get too high. Exactly. It's exactly that. Yeah. Or the staff refrigerator that's full of lean cuisine. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I don't want to, hmm, it's not my intention. You know, there may be all kinds of reasons people make the food choices that they make, but, but just being aware of what is it that we're communicating um, and what are the ways that we're still just assuming that thinness is the thing that we're all, we're all supposed to be. Yeah. I also want to say, I just made a comment saying I've heard dietitians make the comment. And then I talked about not weight going too high. I also want to say therapists have said that. I, I don't feel like I want to single out one, one group or um, you're right. It's, it's in our field. It's very much in our field that, you know, and, and so is a lot of things, right? Like, I think there's a lot of Oh, I think there's a lot of work actually that the eating disorder field needs needs to be doing. Um, yeah, to be to be truly liberatory. Do you think? And and I'm I don't know why my mind just went to this place. Is any of it dictated 
because of insurance though? Do we create models or guidelines? I mean, I remember when I was doing reviews, you know, doc to doc reviews with, and I'd have to give the BMI and I'd have to, you know, say how much weight they've gained or lost. Like how much does insurance company, and please hear me, I'm not giving anybody a hall pass, but for some reason, I just thought about this as well. What does the insurance company play? How do they play into this cre adding to it? Insurance, I think the Oh, there's so much really I could say about that, that whole business of, of insurance. Um, well, I know that, for example, folks in higher weight bodies or fatter bodies or folks there for binge eating treatment, you know, they will, they will need to take a weight every day. I'm like, why the hell are we, why are we, why are we weighing people actually? Because insurance needs it. So, and, and actually, you know, insurance plays in then for how, how long, Somebody can stay in a program that they might need to be in longer, but get kicked out because, you know, I mean, it's just capitalism's a, a bitch here, right? It's hard. And I think it's also really hard then for people to get individual, truly individualized treatment. And right there, right there breaks my heart because we are trying to say to people that are, that are struggling with eating disorders, you are not unique in your eating disorder. Be a unique individual. Yet we apply this like one size fits all treatment or way of diagnosing or way of getting insurance covered. And you know what, Carmen? I am different than you. You are different than somebody else who struggled with an eating disorder. And it's it's such a contradiction of what we're trying to, it's, it's the exact opposite of what we're trying to teach the clients. No, 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 it doesn't matter about the number. I have clients say this to me all the time. They say, you say it doesn't, when I get upset about the number, you tell me it's not about the number. Yet when I was in treatment, it was all about the number because that's how I got covered. So you tell me, Karen, what, what do I do? And I'm like, uh, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's dicey. It's complicated, complex, all of that. It is. It is. And I also want to say that there are a lot of people out there that do. I think I, I feel really grateful for the guests that I've had on this show that I do feel have been able to carry a perspective of looking at everybody as an individual. Not everybody, you know, not everybody. I, I want to make sure we also say that not every provider falls into that, but that's, I feel like, that's up and coming and new, and we've got a long way to go. Yeah, I'm really glad you named that. I, I you know, one of my teachers is Desiree Attaway, and she reminds me often that, you know, I want to critique systems um, and not people. Mm. Yeah. You know, so it's the system I'm talking about. Of course, very good people doing very good work, always, everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of want to make a hard turn if that's okay. Let's go. Let's go. Let's turn. Let's take a turn. So, and, but this is still obviously talking about weight stigma. You, you said something in one of your past interviews and it just blew me out of the water. And you have talked about before in the past that you have lost a sister. Your sister passed away from anorexia nervosa. And 
the way you described it though on this interview and it was exact that it was perfect you said my sister died from weight stigma no it's close it's close my sister died from anorexia but weight stigma is what killed her i believe that i believe that which goes back to your initial question in a way i don't know if it was your initial question but one of your early questions about the way weight stigma impacted um my recovery and i think about about the way that impacted both me and you know my sister and i and the development of our eating disorders and different recovery processes and I mean who knows right like there's no crystal ball to know what would have happened um but I do believe that weight stigma killed her is it difficult for you working with a population with such a high mortality rate having had the experience of losing a sister so answer that by saying I have never worked that much with anorexia in my own private practice um partly because it's, it's close in a way, and partly because I'm not sure it's where my best skill set is. Um, so I don't tend to get, I mean, it's such a long, and it's such a long story, the, the relationship that I have with, with that part of my life and with her illness. And um, I, 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 how do I want to answer this? Um, so I guess my answer is no that part of it doesn't really trigger me that much. Um, what I do think we don't talk that often about as a field is perhaps the need for a harm reduction model in, in some instances and palliative care. Um, I am not sure that I believe, well, see, this is edgy to even say, and sometimes I'm like, what do I believe? And I'm always evolving that, but I, I don't know that if we would have stopped trying to force recovery onto something, onto someone that never wanted it, could she have spent, you know, more of her life and her death with a little more dignity? There's a question sometimes I wonder. Does that make sense? It feels edgy to say that. It's a, it makes a hundred percent sense. Um, you and I have worked with colleagues that um, do believe in palliative care. And as you said, dying with dignity. I think it's a very personal and controversial, it's it's unique to each person. Every situation is different. I know that there's there's two schools of thought. One is how can we let somebody with such a starved brain make that decision? Then um, I, I have heard people talk using this really wonderful metaphor that I'm probably gonna mess up that parents always want us to have a safety net for their child. But sometimes the, and, and I am really messing this up, but sometimes the, the child, because they, they don't want to live. And when I say child, that could be an adult child. And then they get tangled up in the safety net. And then we're trying to get them out of the safety net when sometimes I'm, I'm not doing this justice, but it's, it's a very complicated situation. Is there anything, and I want to honor Carmen. I, I don't want to ask you to talk about anything too personal or whatnot, but is, is there any more you could say about that? I don't even know if people fully understand what you and I are talking about. I think what I, I just find myself wondering if there are ways 
we can help relieve suffering, right? That don't look like we imagine them to look like. I have worked with people in the past that for the time we've worked together, we're very clear that they weren't going to stop engaging in certain behaviors. And so rather than coming in and trying to make them stop, right? I, I just wanted to say, well, why you're doing that, let's keep you as safe as we can. You know, um, I don't know if there's something that feels important to me about that. It's honoring somebody's agency, honoring, you know, not taking that away from people. It's complicated. Do you mind me asking just how long your sister struggled or suffered for and could have been her whole life? A really long time. Um, let's see. That, that requires math, Karen. And so that's going to be a little hard. Um, I'd say over 25 years, maybe longer, but I'm just ballparking right now. Yeah. So a really long time. Do you feel that it played into your wanting to recover or did it, did it impact your process in any way? Hmm. I think it impacted my, uh, yes, is, is, yes, is the short answer. Um, of course. Right. And I don't know that I want to get a whole lot into, um, some of the dynamics, but I think what it did do was fuel my deep desire to work at that intersection of eating disorders and weight stigma. So I feel like when I got out of, of school with my master's degree and I was going to start my practice, I knew that that's where I wanted to be. And I think that it definitely had an impact there. I was just going to say something. And as everybody knows, I do this all the time. I forgot. Give me a second. It'll come back to me. Wow. This time it didn't. Carmen, This <laughs> it almost always comes back to me. I apologize, everybody. I, I can't remember where I was going with this. It still might. We'll see. It'll come back at some moment. So so speak a little bit about you give talks. You, you also work with younger population. I, I saw that you want to educate younger people and give them a voice. Am I, am I, again, am I making any of this up or is that? Uh, you're not, no, you're not making it up. <laughs> let's, I want to hear a little bit about that because I do think this is really important. I, I actually am taking boxing lessons right now, um, which might be surprising to some people, <laughs> but I'm really loving it. And every time I say, I'm sorry, my boxing coach makes me do 10 push-ups. Now, I want to tell you that that's helped me, but it hasn't. I still say I'm sorry. And so one day I said, I'm sorry. Instead of asking me to do 10 push-ups, she asked someone else in the gym to do them. I'm like, oh my God, she's got me figured out. And that was, that worked. That worked. That's brilliant. By the way, I do remember what I was going to say. <laughs> and I thought about it when you talked about boxing. Random. Okay. You said that one of the things that, that sort of fueled your, your idea of wanting to work at the intersection of, of eating disorders and weight stigma was anger. Like you had anger. And this is where I want to say to people, don't be afraid of your emotions. Don't be afraid of anger. Anger is telling you something and then do something with it. Don't just sit in it. That's and then when you said boxing, for some reason I thought about anger and violence. I don't I, I apologize for making that connection. But I love that. I say like people say to me all the time, like, oh, I, I'm afraid of my anger. What why? 
let first of all, let's talk about why you're afraid of your anger. Second of all, are you gonna stuff that down? There's something that needs to be attended to. And that's what you did with your anger. And that's what you're still doing. That's a healthy expression of anger. I became an activist, right? Yep. Yep. Anger, like if it's a message for me that something, it's a no that's trying to get communicated in some way. It's a boundary that's getting crossed. It's a way to say something is happening that's not good for me. Um, then I want to go there. Like that's too important for me to turn away from. And anger has been misused and all kinds of ways. So it makes sense that a lot of us have different kinds of um, relationships to anger. Um, but yeah, and actually boxing has been a great way for me to, um, to move the energy actually um, so that then I know what I want to do, right? From a clear place. And also because there's not always just one clear cut way to release emotions and there's not one clear cut way of be, of doing something like you've got to have more than one outlet that that's and this is a random jump but I, and I still want to get back to the kids but that's like when clients say to me um I have to go running you know clients that are that I I say to them you know until you can increase your your food intake or stop purging or whatnot no more it's the only way I can get rid of my anger or my my anxiety and I say well that sucks we need to find more ways you cannot have one one coping skill to turn to because God forbid, Carmen, what if you couldn't go boxing? You still have other outlets. Or what if for some reason you had to stop your advocacy work for a little while, which would be very upsetting for you, but you'd still have other outlets. And so, I don't know, that's just what came to my mind. So I was just, I was thinking about that when you said, yeah, and I also turned to boxing that releases my, that shifts my energy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Energy wants to move. Energy needs to move. Our bodies want to move with things. I know. I know. Let's talk about the work that you do with younger people. Say a little mm -hmm. bit about that. Yeah. It's not so, it's not as current right now. Um, but what I did was I really, I really believed in the power of activism actually as, as healing, as prevention, as something that's just, it was deeply important for me as a, as a feminist therapist but also in my own healing journey. And so wanted to help young people, um, wanted to help young folks, like uh, youth activism matters a lot to me. And then I wanted them to feel like they had agency and that they could do something about the problem of eating disorders in their schools and communities. So really partnering with them and standing side by side with them and saying, what's going on in your life that makes your relationship with your body hard? And what do you think the solutions could be? And so really was co-created together you know, it wasn't me telling them what needed to happen. It was me listening to them and helping them go about their own solutions. And so it was an amazing, it's some of the, I think, most deeply meaningful work I've done in my life was being able to work with um, hundreds of teenagers over, over a decade. And um, we went to Washington, DC. It's weird to think about that now, given all of the stuff that's happening recently, but I would, uh, the Eating Disorder Coalition in Washington, D.C. would have lobby days. And so I'd, I'd take a group of teenagers across the country and um, they got to experience using their voice and speaking to people in power and learning that their voice mattered, that they had something to say, that they could be, that they could be heard, that they could impact change. Um, and then we went and got cupcakes because that's what you do in Washington, D.C. <laughs> I love that you also say, I listened to them. I didn't tell them what to do because 
if we are constantly telling, especially young people, this is the way you do that something and that doesn't match their soul or their values, we've just said to them, regardless of your values, <laughs> regardless of what your goals are, this is the way to do it. And that's not the message you want young kids to have. Or anybody, right? Anybody. That's, yeah, yeah. That is wonderful. I can't even imagine what that experience was like. I can't imagine what the experience was like because also teenagers are sometimes not taken seriously. And that pisses me off. I, and I cut you off then. I'm sorry, Karen. No, I love it. Go for it. It pisses me off, actually, that that we do that to younger folks. Sometimes we do it to older folks. It's like, my gosh, young folks, you know, teenagers are some of the smartest people I know. Yeah. Things every day. Like, and why are we assuming that adults, it just makes me mad, the adultism, actually, in the way that, that we don't, we don't listen or um, believe in the power of, of young people. That's why I love, like I said, that you say to the, or you said to them, what do you need? What are you feeling? What are you thinking? Not only are they intelligent, by the way, I think teenagers, uh, and, and I'm making a very broad statement, so forgive me for making such a generalization, but they have so much emotion and so much to say. I just don't think they have the dialogue sometimes. So for you to sit there and say, I'm here, I want to listen to it. I want to hear it. It gives them time to sit and really think about it. And by the way, they are our future. <laughs> so if we don't let them speak freely and we just tell them what to think, we're just recreating patterns after patterns. I don't think that we have enough spaces for truth telling as it is. And so to be able to sit in a circle with a group of young folks and say, let's just talk about what's happening. I want to hear your dreams. I want to hear your ideas. I want to hear all of your questions. You're afraid to ask some other adult. Like there's nothing we're not going to be able to talk about here. And now let's go take some action and do some stuff and do some change, you know, create some change. It's, it's unbelievable how we, we sort of silence them and, you know, well, when they get older, things like that. You also do work, a lot of work with LGBTQI. Is that, is that correct? I forgive me for asking the last one. Um, the letters, you know, there's all different ways to, okay. to do that. <laughs> Tell me how that work shows. And, and I guess my question is, is, does that show up differently? Do eating disorders show up differently? If, if you see them in your practice with that community? And I, I guess I'll just start with that. Uh, so I do identify as queer. And so I think that, oh gosh, the answer is yes and no. <laughs> in so many, in so many ways, right? Like there's always these nuanced answers that I don't think we always make enough room for, um, actually. And so I think embodiment, um, oh gosh, this is just such a, I didn't expect this question, Karen. I'm stumbling. Let me give, let me, let me take a second. I hope you don't mind that I asked it, but of course I, I, not. yeah. I just love all the parts that, of work that you do. Well, thank you. Thank you. I don't mind the question at all. Um, here's what I'll say. I think that what we're still coming to, what I'm still coming to understand and learn about 
um, and the people that I get to work with have been very gracious and in, in teaching me along the way. Um, I think eating disorders can look and serve a different function, particularly in the non-binary and, and trans population. And I am in no way, shape or form, the best person to speak about that um, because that, that is not how I identify. So, so I'm, I'm being very careful here. Um, I'm gonna be very clear about that. But there is a way that um, for some folks, it's not about losing weight and being thin. It's about getting, it's about having their body match. It's about all kinds of other things related to gender expression. Um, again, that I'm not the best person to speak to, but I think when I started in the field, there wasn't a nuanced understanding of the different ways that um, disordered eating can show up and, and the function that it serves and what it's trying to help folks with. Yeah, yeah. Again, I think that, I don't know why I said again, because I said the first part. So as I'd like to say, everyone, um, the this is why people, if they don't understand that eating disorders hold multiple functions. And, you know, I had on the show, I don't know if you know Becky Henry, she does a lot of family work. And the title of her show, I think, was like, just tell her to stop. Because that's what people said to Becky about her daughter. Oh, just tell her to stop. Oh, it's just a food thing. Just tell her to eat. Just have a sandwich. Right. Like, <laughs> right. Yeah. And there are so many, many functions of an eating disorder, which is why it's so complex and complicated to work with. Also, from my perspective, so rich and so beautiful to work with. Somebody once asked me, like, do you ever get sick of working with just eating disorders? And I said, what do you think? I just talk about purging all day or binging or restricting. Like, that's, that's part of it. But I also talk about trauma and sexual identity and anxiety and, and what there's so much that goes into it. We, I, and, and the way I feel is I just have, have additional training, both from personal and you know professional, how to work with the behaviors and understand them a little bit more. But we're working with so much. I, I feel very, very honored to be working with this population of people. Same. And we're working with people's desires and their appetites and their longings and their needs and their limits and their boundaries. Like all of that shows up. Yeah, all of it does. Carmen, I hate to say that we're coming to an end, but we are going to have to start to end the episode. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you would like to say or share with listeners or? Anything at all you'd just like to finish before I ask your final question? Hmm. Not that I can think of right now. Yeah, thank you. Well, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for, for being here. I, I really appreciate the work that you do. Thank you. It's, it means a lot to hear that. And it's been so fun to be in conversation and connection with you. It's fun. That's why I love doing the podcast. People think I do it for everyone else. Sometimes I do it just for me because I get to sit and talk with all these beautiful souls. That's right. <laughs> all right, Carmen, before we end, I have to ask you your final, final question, which is, if you were a character in a movie, book, or television show, what genre would you live in? I find it impossible to pick just one. So 
I'm not going to. And so I'm going to say that if it, it if it's film we're talking about, I think the genre would be um, either a black comedy or documentary. Um, if it's a TV show, I think it'd be it'd be one of the cooking shows. And if it's a book, uh, again, I'm gonna I'm there's a part of me that would say poetry. There's a part that would say memoir. And then there's a part, honestly, that would say it would be in a picture book. <laughs> I love that. First of all, I love that you answered all three. No one's ever done that, which is fantastic. Um, a documentary, I've, I have not heard. I love that. And I love a picture book. It feels like answering it in that way was a way to honor all of the different parts of me that make up the whole. So thanks for the question. Thank you for sharing that answer. Again, Carmen, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Karen. All right, everyone. That does it for another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. To wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast. All right, everybody, be well, and thanks for listening to my Bite for the Week.